Welcome everybody to episode 7 of the Big Cat People's Series of Podcasts. It's our story, Becoming the Big Cat People, and in episode 7, I've called it Angie, the girl with the long blonde hair. In the last episode, I discussed this strange feeling that uh, would come over me from time to time, which is called dissociation, how the mind copes with too much stress, such as during a traumatic event, it can last hours or days, and in my case, it lasted much longer, weeks or even months at times. And initially, it was extremely frightening because you didn't know whether you were losing your mind, whether you would come out at the other end. It was like walking into fog. Would it ever clear? Would you come through? How would you feel when you did? And I've since found out that it's a natural response to trauma that you can't control. And it would date back, I think, probably to that fall that I had as a kid, which I never told anybody about, which I buried and which I associated with some kind of anxiety from the death of my dad. Goodness knows what. Anyway, I'm now at this point in my life headed towards 40. My dad died when he was 42. I was in a race to sort of outlive him. And I'd achieved many of my dreams, certainly as far as my obsession with Africa's magnificent wild creatures. I'd I'd realized my dream of coming to the Maasai Mara after my overland trip, 1974 to 1975, two years in Botswana, and then back to East Africa and to the magic of Savannah, Africa and in particular, the Mara Serengeti. And now I'd managed to find a way of living in the Mara at Mara River Camp from 1977 onwards. So headed for 40, middle-aged as they describe it. Not that I was particularly thinking in terms of, you know, measuring my life by that, apart from the fact of talking about the death of my dad. And certainly when it came to relationships, my track record was not very good. And I'd always loved women in the best possible way. I'd been brought up by a mother and sister. They were my two closest members of my family. My brother was 14 years older than me. He was a wonderful, is a wonderful man, Clive. And in a sense, he was like a sort of, you know, a a second father, an an interim, a surrogate father. And so my relationship with him until I grew up and was big enough to be able to be man to man and and talk as a a fellow human being was very much the older brother, the father figure, and somebody who was there to sort of, you know, when mum couldn't cope with us, then, you know, well, I'm going to talk to Clive and he'll, he'll talk to you, he'll sort this out. And I had huge respect for him. But definitely my world as a youngster was a world of women. And so when I went to boarding school to Christ Hospital, it became a a world of men. And I was grateful for that because I think the old saying of being tied to your mother's apron strings, you know, being at home just with my mum and my sister, if I hadn't have gone away to school, I think um, life would have been very different. But I relished going to Christ Hospital and and all the sport that I played. In fact, I, I did a lot more playing sport than I did work until I realised that I was going to have to just simply to catch up with my sister because the pressure was on me to follow in the footsteps of my dad, to be successful. And 
In a sense, my mother gave me that gift of freedom in as much as she didn't push me to become, you know, an architect or something in my, uh, you know, in the footsteps of my father. But in the same way, everybody talked about him. He was a heroic figure to me. Um, and, and so he was somebody that I wanted to live up to. And so at this point, I really did feel that I hadn't just sort of bummed around in Africa and wasted my life, that I had actually achieved something. I'd written a book on with Brian Jackman on lions. I'd written about leopards. Um, you know, I'd been uh, to the Serengeti. I'd written about the Great Migration, um, the wild dogs. I'd won the Wildlife Photographer of the Year. Just in terms of measurement of success in those terms, I was doing well. I, I was living up to what People had hoped of me, certainly my family, but definitely it was big cats first, relationships second. And I was a very, I think, self-possessed young person. Um, I was very unneedy in many ways. I was so happy just being in nature. I, I wasn't a material, materialistic kind of person. I didn't want a smart car. I didn't want smart clothes. I couldn't care less about that kind of thing, about possessions. If I lost it all, it wouldn't matter to me. It was about living and loving nature. And so I think in some ways that, you know, losing my dad, being brought up in that kind of way, it made me need to stand on my own feet, to be very self-contained, very self-possessed, because I had a sense that, you know, nothing was forever. People could disappear out of your life. You know, you need to rely on your own abilities and your own self-sufficiency. Um, but I certainly had needed to sort myself out in terms of the anxiety and the obsessions. I think I was beginning to, to do that. Um, but I didn't want a relationship to make my life whole. I was happy with my own company. Um, I was always busy. I wasn't needy. And so when relationships didn't turn out the way I wanted to them, uh, them to, I was very likely to just say, OK, fine, it's not working. Walk away. I wasn't prepared to put in the time and to compromise to make the relationship work. And I felt that I didn't really need to up until that point. And when I say up until that point, that point was around the late 80s, 87, 88, I met the most extraordinary person, and her name was Angie, Angie Bellamy, Angela Bellamy. To me and to many other people, she was the girl with the long blonde hair, this beautiful, serene, quiet, humble, just beautiful presence. And I actually first heard about Angie when the people who run the Nation Bookstore and a great friend, um, Farid, where I used to go and talk to him about the books that they had. And sometimes I'd sign books because they'd have people who were buying them and wanted a signed copy. And so the Nation Bookshop on the corner of Kenyatta Avenue, where the new Stanley Hotel was, um, I used to go there and I used to talk to them, chat to them about the books. And on one occasion, Farid said to me, there's a lady who has left her telephone number. Her name's Angie Bellamy, and she is looking to try and find copies of your books because she's working at a camp called Kichwatemba. And I thought straight away, well, hang on a minute. That's where I'm living in the Maasai Mara. Anyway, she was the buyer for Abercrombie and Kent, Jory Kent, Mrs. Kent's chain of shops, which were to become 
by the brand name Jories. And these were a series of courier shops in East Africa at different camps and lodges, either owned or run by Abercrombie and Kent. And Angie was the buyer and the manager for this chain of shops. And she was looking to try and get copies of my books, which I'm grateful to say were pretty popular. So there was The Marsh Lions, The Leopard's Tail, Painted Wolves, all the various books that I'd been working on. And they weren't easy to find, so she had left a message. If I had some copies or would sign some copies, please let her know. So I rang her up, and I heard this wonderful voice. And any of you who've seen our recent television series, Big Cat Tales, will know what I mean. Angie has a little bit of magic to her voice. It will just soothe you if you're feeling uptight or Angie is a great listener. But when she talks, it's just wonderful and reassuring. And so I heard Angie on the other end of the phone and I thought, gosh, this lady sounds wonderful. So I said, well, look, why don't we meet up for lunch? Which we did. And at the time, the last thing Angie was looking for was a relationship. And she was as beautiful as her voice. And so I thought to myself, goodness me, this, this, is, this is different. Because for a number of reasons, why didn't my relationships work very well before that? Well, first of all, I used to go out a lot of times with people who just came and went in East Africa on safari. Airline stewardesses, British Airways, Lufthansa, KLM, SAS. A lot of the major airlines used to bring people to Kenya to take them on safari. And at times the crews would stay over and they would come down with Jock to Mara River Camp and I would be potentially one of the safari guides. And after a couple of days on safari, then the option would be to drive those guests back up to Nairobi where they would be staying in one of the hotels and possibly would like to go out dancing at, I love this, I mean Jock had now invested in a camp with Joe Oxley called the Pasha Club in downtown Nairobi. It was a nightclub. Music, wonderful for dancing and just the place that you might want to go if you had a young lady on your arm and you wanted to dance and have a great time. And so these were short-term relationships, unless perchance, and it happened once or twice, there was a stewardess who actually stayed over, was resident in Nairobi with the airline, and then the you know, the relationship might last for a year. And in fact, I did have a long-term relationship. Well, I call it a long-term relationship. My longest relationship with a lovely local girl who worked for Jock Anderson, who was from a Kenya family. And at one point, we got engaged. I went down, I did my due diligence. I talked to my mom. Anyway, I went down to Hatton Garden, which is famous for diamond rings. And I bought what I thought was a beautiful ring. And then I brought it up to where my mom was and she said you know what maybe just take that just down the road to Mappin and Webb and get them to have a look at it well it was full of what they call inclusions like black dirty black sooty lumps in the diamond so I cancelled the check could have got me into a lot of trouble and the ring went back and the engagement was called off and that was the closest I got to going further with a long-term relationship. And so when I met Angie, I wasn't looking for a relationship. She wasn't looking for a relationship. She'd been married before. She had two beautiful children, David and Alia. And so when I met her, 
you know, the last thing I think for either of us was a thought that really we were going to get involved, but we did. It was just impossible not to. That voice, this beautiful person, these extraordinary children, the chance to be a father, the very thing that I had missed so much in my life. Father's Day, where was my dad? He wasn't going to be there, of course. So being a father to David and Alia was a golden opportunity for me to fill this vacuum in my life. And it just seemed so natural. All of the things that I had put up as barriers as to why a relationship wouldn't work. Because how would somebody from overseas, they might love the idea of safari and coming and watching big cats for a day or two, but would they really want to spend days, weeks in the back of a car while the big cats did absolutely nothing, waiting for the moment for them to stir when you could take a picture, writing about them. But Angie was that person. And I think, and I said this at one point on one of the TV shows, you know, I, there am I driving along in the front of the vehicle and I look in the rearview mirror and there's Angie and it's as if she's always been there. And there's just this look of serenity of somebody who is totally at peace with themselves who is totally happy for being where they are out in the wilds, who was born in Africa, brought up in Africa, who is of Africa, and who loved it as much as I did. And so Angie was born in Alexandria in Egypt, and when she was four years old, Colonel Nasser kicked the Brits out, Suez Crisis, and off her dad took the family. He was a cotton buyer. He worked in uh, the linseed oil business, Egypt, of course, famous for its cotton. And so he went south. He took the family, along with his wife Joy, to Tanzania, Tanganyika in those days, Dar es Salaam, on the coast, a beautiful house and a beautiful location. And Angie has always loved the ocean. I think more even than the big cats and the savannah, Angie immersing herself in the deep blue with goggles or diving, going down into that mysterious, quiet world which suits her so much, the calmness, just the sound of the fish nibbling on the coral, just excitedly waggling her hand to, to call me to come closer as we move forward and swim amongst seals in the Galapagos Islands, just loving the ocean, running barefoot with her brother David, her much-beloved brother, who sadly on the 15th of December 2022 died, and who was her soulmate, and who loved that same life of being outdoors, being out in the wilds of Tanzania, and of course Serengeti, the great Serengeti, the big brother of, or big sister of the Maasai Mara, where Angie and I have spent so much of our life following the big cats. That was the family's safari destination, along with Ngorongora Crater. They'd camp out around the Serengeti, reveling in the same things that I was to come to love, born and brought up there. And so she was bright as a button. She was a great horse rider. She was a champion, water skier. Her granddad, and we'll talk about him again later, we went in search of the story of her grandfather, Hugo Salmon Backhouse. Imagine this, a gringo running a polo ranch, a ranch breeding horses, polo ponies, in Cordoba, up in the mountainous hill country where pumas range, in Argentina, 
living in the wild. That was where her mum was born. That was where her granny and grandfather raised those horses and Hugo Backhaus captained the Argentine polo team. Well, anybody who knows anything about horses and polo knows that the Argentinians are legendary. Well, here was Hugo, could ride as well as they could and captain the Argentine polo team. His team, or as a member of the team that won the Buenos Aires, the Argentine Open. We've been to actually watch that final, Hugo Cambiasso. Oh, just incredible. Anyway, more of that later. So Angie came from that kind of background. She got married very early. She had a daughter, our daughter, Alia, and a son, David, by second marriage. And so it was, it was extraordinary, really, because here was this magical person, Angie, who just suddenly ticked all the boxes. I didn't have to worry about would she love Africa? How much would she love Africa? Would she be able to just be at peace in Africa? Would she love art and photography? Yes, 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 all of those things. So here was this extraordinary female, and blow me if there wasn't another extraordinary female of around the same time, 87, 1987-88, who appeared on my horizon and would become such a big part of mine and Angie's and Alia's and David's life. Halftail the Leopard, star of Big Cat Diary, and of course we'll be talking about that later in another episode, who at the time had all of that tail. She wasn't halftail. I'd called her the Paradise Female. She had moved from Paradise Plain, little bit by little bit. No room for her down there. Maybe her mother and an older sister were already in all of the available territories. So she moved, looking, looking, looking for somewhere to settle and eventually settled along Fig Tree Ridge and Leopard Gorge. Those same areas where Chewy, the leopard that I had been part of the process of habituating, the Mara Buffalo female's daughter, Chewy, and her cubs, Light and Dark, Fig Tree Ridge, Leopard Gorge. She disappeared, and many years later, Halftail took up residence in that wonderful leopard habitat. So I'd spent four years at Mara River Camp, 1977 to 81, watching the marshlands. When the males were pushed out and crossed the river, I came across to Kichwatembo. And as I've said, Angie was the buyer for... Kichwatembo was owned by Abercrombie and Kent. And Angie was the buyer for the chain of shops. And she was there. And I'd seen her, but I hadn't realized who she was at the time. And now suddenly, here she was. She even slept in my bed. Didn't know it was my bed, or maybe she did at the time, but we didn't know each other. But as I say, that that voice. And I just want to read you a little piece in our autobiography. So anybody who's interested in taking this story a bit further in a bit more detail, you can read our autobiography, which is called The Big Cat Man, an autobiography. It's published by Brat. 2016. If you go to the Brat Guidebook site, you'll find that particular book. So I've put here, whatever reservations Angie might have had about relationships, allied to my own fear of commitment, soon evaporated when we realized just how much we had in common, not least a love of family and children, and a passion for wild places, photography and drawing. It reminded me of a passage in Sunset on the Magnata by Kenneth, Kenyan author Kenneth Watani. This is what he said, and this is where it resonated. 
Have you ever stopped to wonder why it was that we felt so free with each other? I suppose it would seem as if you were a spirit that originally belonged to the same realm with my spirit, and our meeting was the rejoining of a splintered one. Talented artist that she is, Angie also had that wonderful gift of making wherever she settles into home, of being able to convert mere bricks and mortar, soulless entities in themselves, into a repository for a rich tapestry of quilts and cushions, carpets, and so Angie's a homemaker. So just that gives you a little bit about this extraordinary um, togetherness that, that we have felt in our life, to be so blessed. And so there she was. Now we're at Kitchwetemba together. We're not married. We're beginning to sort of go out and photograph together. We're seeing Half Tale or Paradise Female at that time. And there was one particular extraordinary big cat character who we were following, part of the Kitchwetemba of Pride. And she was the oldest female. And we called her Shushu, which means grandmother in Kikuyu. And we watched Shushu, as we have with many of these other cats, all the way through their lives. And eventually she was so thin and so bony and so malnourished that she could barely stand on all four feet. Her head seemed to become even more powerful and enormous. Her body seemed to visibly shrink in front of us. And inevitably, at times, she would be left behind by the rest of the pride. They would go off and hunt. She would maybe arrive too late, get the scraps if she was lucky. And I remember one day when the pride were lying down and everybody except for Shushu got up and quietly moved away. Barely a sound. And Shushu just lay there. We could see the, the breathing, her ribs, her chest rising and falling as she breathed, not moving not responding in any way. Normally with lions, there's this sort of intuitive togetherness. One moves, everybody moves. But in this instance, no. And then suddenly she stood up, looked around, they'd gone, and she roared. What an amazing sound it was. And then she sort of totted off into the distance. And so at this point in time, Angie was living up in Nairobi at a ramshackle property on Olalua Ridge. And uh, it was threadbare, the, it was poorly secure. I was very worried about, you know, trying to fix it up to some degree, getting bars put on the windows because it was isolated, backed onto Olalua Forest. And in fact, one night our watchman called us and he said, look, there's, I, I could hear somebody crying, screaming in the forest. And we went and there was this man naked, tied to a tree. Apparently it was a drop-off point for hijacked victims after they'd nicked your car and dumped you, robbed you of everything, including your clothes and your shoes, just left you. And this poor man was, was shivering and shaking, was absolutely beside himself, his knees just buckling, sure that the hyenas would find him before somebody else did. And so it was not an ideal place. And at one point, at some point, after Angie and I were married, 1992, we got married on the top of the Syria escarpment in a wonderful ceremony celebrated by friends from the safari community, the ballooning community. My mum came out, old Colonel Connor came up from Nairobi, the gentleman who I used to have a room where I could stay at his house. 
Um, we did a balloon ride. We, we did everything that we should have. And we celebrated with our friends amongst the Maasai community. We sang songs. We had Bob Campbell, dear Bob Campbell, survival angler, cameraman, wonderful wildlife photographer who took the film, the movie of our wedding and to his horror found that something had gone wrong, that the tape hadn't taken, the sound wasn't working. Poor man. But we had our memories. And when Angie and I then came back, exhausted by the celebration, we went and we sat around the campfire. And as we were sitting there, two people appeared out of the shadows, an old greybeard, an old Maasai man and his wife, who we knew from the local community. And they had been waiting there all evening. And they had with them a rungu, a club, taken from an olive tree, a ceremonial sign of an elder, of a married man. And the woman had a beautiful, beautifully beaded necklace that she put around Angie's neck. And it was just this wonderful affirmation of our relationship with the extraordinary place that we call the Masai Mara, with Kichwatembo, with our friends across cultures, of every colour and denomination, and of coming together and celebrating those universal truths of birth and love and marriage, and ultimately, too, of course, death. And so it was interesting, the transitions that I went through, because I remember at one point, Michael Jordan's mother came out, the the great basketball player. She came out with one of her daughters and some young people who were part of the Michael Jordan Foundation who were brought to sort of experience life in other countries and continents and who had come out to enjoy the wonders of the Mara. And I'd been asked to talk to them. And later they sent, Michael Jordan sent a signed baseball cap or basketball cap and a rucksack and a basketball and all kinds of goodies, which David absolutely loved. But I remember reading something that Michael Jordan said, which was very, very relevant to a transition that I needed to go through because I loved being a father. And I very quickly realized that it didn't matter what I had done in my life or where I'd gone to school or what I'd done in terms of sports or achievements. It wasn't about me. It was all about David. It was all about actually giving him the best chance in life. And in particular, I remember reading that Michael Jordan, you know, talked about his relationship with his children. And he said, look, you know, it was so important for, to them, he was just dad. And to me, to David, I was dad. And so if we were walking down the street and David saw literally a conversation coming his way, he would know when I was up from safari, there would be people we'd bump into on the street and I'm a chatterbox and there would be a lot of people who'd want to bend my ear about what they'd seen, what they'd done or, you know, just being friendly and and reacquainting. And David, when he would see that look on somebody's face and maybe my face of a conversation about to happen, he would grip my hand particularly hard and he'd squeeze it and pump it. He wouldn't say a word and I would just know, make it quick. This is my time. This is David's time. This is for him. And it was such a, an important lesson to learn, you know, being a dad and doing the best possible job. So when he was older, David confided to us how intimidating it had been, trapped in the back of the vehicle, that's our safari vehicle where he lived and slept at times, with two wildlife photographers, one of them particularly single-minded and manic in his approach. Alia found it difficult too. It could be hard for me to remember to give quality time 
to the children when some amazing photographic opportunity presented itself, getting the shot, especially when one of the big cats threatened to explode into action, requiring required all-consuming concentration. In those moments, it was as if my life depended upon it, the vehicle lurching across the plains as I tried to secure the best position for us to record, record what was going on. The adrenaline rush can be undeniably addictive. It's when the long days, even weeks spent cooped up in the vehicle, are all about. Angie was always quick to rebalance the situation when this happened, explaining to the children that this was how we earned our living, that photography wasn't just a pastime. David tried to comprehend that this was work, but at the same time found it scary in its intensity. The do-or-die element that for a young child meant a disturbing loss of control. It was a reflection of what one underwater photographer described as the I'd put my head in the shark's mouth moment, a kind of madness when nothing else matters, not even your own safety. So that, I think, you know, it, it does put it into perspective that if you love and are obsessed with what you do as much as I was and as much as Angie is in terms of loving photography and being on safari and the life we've lived, then you have to try to do what all of us must do, which is to create that balance between your work, your family, your community. And so I'm just looking now again at an interesting thing, because when we were living at Kichwatembo, you know, we, we would at times just be desperate to get out of that tin box, that hot car where we would spend so much time. The returns were, were amazing for us when we got a wonderful shot of Halftail or the Paradise Female or Shushu or whatever it was we were following. But at the same time, you know, we, we wanted to stretch our legs and get out, but you've got to be careful how you do it. You don't want to be foolhardy. You don't want to get so relaxed around wild animals and in wilderness settings that you begin to think that actually you're free just to wander around without being careful. And I think that was brought home very clearly because at times Angie and myself would take an afternoon off and we would walk up the thousand foot Syria escarpment above Kichwatemba. We'd take the kids with us at times. And on one particular day, I always remember the gardener, who was a young Maasai called John, he said, oh, well, you know, could I come up with you one of the days? When, you know, when you're walking up the escarpment, I'd love to, you know, could I come and join you? I'll, I'll, I'll be your guide. So, you know, we said, yeah, sure, why not? So now we're walking up the escarpment. We get to the top and there's a long expanse of open, long red oat grass almost shoulder high. And I immediately began to walk out into the long grass. And John stopped me. He said, no, 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 Buana, no, 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 you can't do that. He said, you've got to look. I said, but I have looked. There's nothing there. He said, how can you be so sure? He said, there could be something lying in that grass. <clears throat> Excuse me. He said, come back. So I came back a little bit, sort of, you know, chastened. He said, let's get up on this termite mound, have a good look round. And as we got up onto that termite mound and had a good look round, as John would say, we could just see one shiny black horn of a massive bull buffalo. And I would have walked straight into that. No tree, if I could have, to have scrambled up. No respite from being thumped, hooked, 
horned, trampled, killed by that buffalo. And so John whistled, picked up a couple of stones, threw them into the grass, up got the buffalo, and then off it went, careering off, stopped maybe 50 yards further down. I can hear one of those planes again going overhead with visitors perhaps headed to the Mara or coming back at this time, actually. It's getting late in the evening, so they're probably going to have an exciting time, but not as exciting as it would have been if I'd stumbled onto that buffalo. And so the buffalo got up and snorted, looked at us, and then just stood there. And then it wheeled and ran off. And that was a very good lesson. Doesn't matter how long you've been doing this, how experienced you think you are, you cannot afford for one minute to take things for granted. And so in terms of, you know, worrying and thinking and thinking, you know, gosh, situations like that, what about that anxiety that I've been talking about? Well, let me just again read to you from the autobiography a little bit about how that was going by this particular time. Because... I had suddenly found, you know, I now had somebody else to worry about. I had Angie and the children. I had other priorities. It just didn't matter anymore how I was feeling. It was all about how they were feeling. What could I do for them? That was the priority. So let me just have a look here. So this is what I said. Having a family of my own was undoubtedly the final step in my healing process. I'd been gifted a new and exhilarating way of being, and in taking this on, found freedom from the remnants of my darkest thoughts. Now my focus was Angie, Alia, and David, their well-being, my overriding concern. They were the priorities, not me. This allowed me to see more clearly that ever than ever before that the belief I had clung to with such unyielding tenacity that I was going to die as a consequence of that fall 30 years earlier simply wasn't true. I had been in a giddy race to outlive my father as the only unequivocal proof that I wasn't dying. My tendency to cut and bruise easily was no more than a frustrating inconvenience despite the fact that in time I would require surgery to remedy excessive wear on my joints exacerbated by the condition, knee, wrists, shoulders ultimately, and more importantly, I was coming to terms with the fact that anxiety and depression, along with a touch of mania and obsessive compulsion, were part of who I was. It sounds so simple, yet it had taken me half a lifetime to break free of my demons. And for that, I will never be able to thank Angie and my family enough. So, in 1993, year after we were married, Angie said to me, you know, why don't we think about buying a house, buying a home? Olalua, we knew, was just temporary. It had done us wonderfully well. It had served Angie. She had had a little business there with T-shirts and carpentry business, as well as the work she did for jewelries. And it was the days of exchange control. And I'd been left a little bit of money by my dad um, when he died. And so... If we could find a property, certainly it was potentially something to consider investing in. And Angie happened to hear about a gentleman, an old, wily old gent called Frank Howitt. And Frank was built like the proverbial English oak. He had legs on him like tree trunks. And he had 10 acres. In fact, he had 20 acres to sell. And he had 10 acres that he had said 
you know, Angie had heard about it and she'd come to have a look and she fell in love with it. And I think, like me, she fell in love with the view because it was the out of Africa view. From our house, you can see the Ngong Hills, that famous knuckle-shaped hill top that Karen Blixen immortalized in her book, Out of Africa. And so from our bedroom, we can look out over trees and forests over the giraffe center out towards the Ngong Hills. And it's the most stunning view. And what we loved about the property was there was a sense of wilderness to it. It had a sense of the bush, of the place that we loved, the Maasai Mara. And so Angie had come to have a look at it. She'd met with Frank Howitt. He, of course, with a, um, an eagle eye, both for a deal and also for a pretty girl, had uh, charmed Angie and been charmed by Angie. And she said, look, you know, we should, you should go and speak to him. So on the day that I came up to actually go and talk to Frank, I had got malaria or Bill Hart's here or one of the things that you're almost bound to get if you spend time uh, long enough in the field, in the bush. And I was up at Nairobi Hospital and at some point there was a big commotion outside. And I turned to one of the people there. I said, oh, what, what's happened? They said, oh, there's a, a very sad story. There's a family's just come in. There's a young Kenya man who's married to a, an American lady and she was in her car up at a shopping centre and some thugs came up, pointed a gun at her head, told her to get out. She didn't, she thought twice about it, didn't get out quick enough and they shot her dead. So now I'm thinking to myself, here are we about to invest in a home of our own here in Kenya. And, you know, what about security? What about safety? What about all the issues? You know, the proverbial Nairobi element. You know, is it for people who don't live here or think they could think it was a terribly dangerous place to live? Well, I've, I've survived it. Angie's survived it. But unfortunately, this lady hadn't. But to put it into perspective, Angie said, look, she said, yes, of course, things can go wrong. She said, but are we going to live with one foot in the country and one foot out of the country? Here's an opportunity for a beautiful home, for a place for David and Alia to feel is their home, their place, their safe place. Let's do it. And of course, everybody was telling me, I remember one accountant with Price Waterhouse said, you're crazy. Hard currency, paying in hard currency, you'll never see a return for your money. Well, how wrong were they? And it was a beautiful, the, the property had so many trees. Angie loved trees. And it reminded us of Professor Wangari Maathai, the first Kenyan, first African woman Nobel Peace Prize winner, who stood up against the regime uh, here and against the people who wanted to loot the Karua forest and the Olua forest, who wanted to mine it for rocks and cut the trees down who loved trees, who understood, who, you know, had this Green Belt movement, which he founded. Let's plant a million, call it a billion trees, and goodness me, does Kenya need it? Because people say that you need 10% indigenous tree growth for to ensure water towers, to ensure you've got adequate water. Well, we were down to about 1% or 2%. And so, and we're now paying the price. Our borehole has dried up. Nairobi has a critical shortage of water. We have to have tankers, bowsers, bring us water. And the northern part of the country is suffering five years of drought. So these are all things to consider. So Angie's love of trees, we saw the place, we bought it, and we've never regretted it 30 years on. We look out over the giraffe sanctuary. We've had leopards roaming around. In fact, Frank Howard had one of his dogs grabbed by a leopard, and he said, no bloody way, chase the leopard off. His dog was trashed. 
probably one of the biggest vet bills he's ever had to pay, akin to having your dog trashed by a warthog. And so just to end up with, it's a, a lovely reflection of one of my great heroes, Professor E.O. Wilson, who sort of, you know, thought about why, what is it about, you know, real estate and, and things that people want most. So just let me read you this one last bit. Given the choice, people across the world's cultures want three features in their environment. They want to be on a height looking down. They prefer open, savannah-like terrain with scattered trees and copses. And they want to be close to a body of water such as a river, lake or ocean. Even if all these elements are purely aesthetic and not functional, home buyers pay any affordable price to have such a view. People, in other words, prefer to live in these environments in which humans evolved over millions of years in Africa. So, Africa our home. And no wonder that, you know, we, we respond to that kind of environment. As E.O. Wilson implied, Africa is in the blood of each and every one of us, black and white, creating a resonance dating back a million or more years to the time when our ancestors emerged from the forests onto the sunlit savannas. This is where it all began. It's all of this, the sense of place, of our home, that makes us feel part of this remarkable land. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you're enjoying the Big Cat People podcast, it would mean the world to us if you'd give us a follow on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this episode. And if you'd like to learn more from us, we've recently launched a brand new series of highly requested educational ebooks with a range of topics including wildlife photography, world travel, safari, and more. Our ebooks are available for purchase exclusively from our website at bigcatpeople.com. We appreciate your support and we hope you join us again next week.